0: Welcome to the 506th regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable. So we're going to have to speak up tonight. I can hear it cranking up back there. All right, it seems that tonight is the uh, night for me to talk about how much fun it is to be president of the Civil War Roundtable. I got to propose a toast to our founder, Ralph Newman. I said how great it was to work with members like Joyce uh, Warshaw and Barb Hewitt. I now have to wait for Barb. I now get to uh, introduce a very special fellow member, a speaker of the Civil War Roundtable. Mary Munsell Abro is a name, uh, is a native of Columbus, Ohio. And she holds a bachelor and master's degree from St. Mary's College and Northeastern Illinois University. She is currently competing, uh, completing doctoral, a doctoral candidacy at Loyola University's History Department. And Mary has received the 1990-1991 Loyola University Dissertation Fellowship. And she has delivered papers before numerous groups, including the 11th Annual Illinois History Symposium in December of 1990. Mary joined the Civil War Roundtable in 1982, and currently serves as Senior Vice President. If you want to know what kind of a year you're going to have with Mary as president, let me give you a hint. She already has all of her speakers lined up. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah. Mary has uh, um, authored the uh, Battlefield Preservation Column for the newsletter since September of 1989 and served as chairperson for the 1990 Battlefield Tour of Antietam. After uh, founder, there is no higher achievement in the Civil War Roundtable than to serve two consecutive terms as treasurer. Mary is one of a very select group to have done that. Her topic this evening is Battlefield Commemoration and Preservation, the reason why. 1863 to 1890. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome fellow member Mary
1: Abrell. Well, to paraphrase Alan Nolan, does anybody want a boogie? We'll see if we can do that tonight. Um, Before I begin, I'd just like to preface my talk with one brief remark. And for those of you who know me well, you know that a brief remark coming from me is a miracle in and of itself. Um, But at any rate, I really want to tell you all um, how pleased and proud I am to be standing here tonight talking to my friends in the Chicago Civil War Roundtable. And with that being said, uh, let's get on with it. Um, The serious participation of our federal government in marking and in preserving historic battlefield started just over a century ago with the construction of monuments at Saratoga, at Bennington, at Yorktown, and at several other Revolutionary War battlefields. Uh, during the 1890s then, this federal involvement grew as a network of national military parks was established in order to preserve six major Civil War battlefields. Uh, the operative question here, and the issue I want to address this evening is the following. What was the preservation spirit? What was the preservation ideal of the late 19th century United States? In other words, what circumstances of contemporary American life moved private citizens and the national government to mark and to preserve historic battlefields generally and Civil War fields specifically? In a general sense, motivation for preserving and commemorating historic battlefields was related to the fact that during the 18th and the 19th centuries, um, until the Spanish-American War, all the wars in which Americans were involved had been fought on American soil. The Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Indian Wars, and of course the Civil War. Uh, The movement to preserve and to memorialize certain of these fields with federal participation started during the 1870s. Precisely, many Americans of that period had ancestors who had fought in the Revolution and virtually all had themselves, of course, lived through the Civil War. As one time National Park Service Chief Historian Ronald Lee put it, quote, quote, The great issues of those wars were part of their lives, and to them, preserving and marking the major battlefields was a national obligation. It was not a matter of choice, but indeed, it was a national obligation, at least in their perception. During the quarter century after the Civil War, Americans discharged this duty through the raising of battlefield monuments. Although Civil War fields were memorialized much more extensively than Revolutionary War fields, a concerted effort within the private sector to erect monuments on major Revolutionary fields arose in association with the Revolutionary Centennial during the late 1870s. Congress participated, albeit in a very limited way, by appropriating funds to construct monuments um, on eight fields in six states. Uh, As I noted, none of these Revolutionary War battlefields became the sites of large-scale commemoration. However, this private sector initiative of the 1870s sparked attempts during the 1880s to obtain congressional funding for a variety of projects related to marking and commemorating Revolutionary War battlefields. Although none of these proposed bills passed, the effort itself was important. Uh, The proposed legislation, with attendant committee hearings and reports, raised significant issues concerning national historic preservation policy before Congress for the very first time in our history. Moreover, precedent was established uh, for future debate over the national government's role in historic battlefield preservation. Eventually, along with the construction of monuments, uh, the establishment of national military reservations on specific Civil War battlefields came to be the vehicle for Americans of the 1890s in fulfilling their perceived patriotic obligation. Why was the erection of monuments and memorials, the initial battlefield preservation activity? One very practical reason was fear of losing track of the sites. For example, several significant revolutionary battles, a Saratoga in New York, a Bennington in Vermont and Kings Mountain in South Carolina had taken place in wild and remote forested areas. By the late 19th century, it appeared likely that with the passage of time, important sites would become overgrown and their locations obscured or even lost, even if the battles themselves were remembered one goal of those who erected monuments on battlefields was to identify those sites permanently as well as to memorialize the combatants. By the 1880s, natural changes in the physical environment also threatened Civil War sites, especially those in the Deep South, like Chickamauga and Chattanooga, where the humid climate encouraged the rapid growth of vegetation. There also arose an interest in marking Civil War fields for military purposes and scientific study during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Precisely as Civil War fields were being acquired and marked during that time, scientific accuracy in the study of history generally was being stressed in the United States. This was a tendency which developed as American scholars came to emulate the strict critical methods uh, characterizing contemporary German historical study at that time. Now, what impact did this tendency have on marking Civil War fields with monuments and memorials? Well, great importance became attached to detailed and accurate documentation, mapping, and marking of troop locations on the battlefields. Such accuracy was important, not only for professional historians, but also for professional soldiers who themselves clearly had a vested interest in the detailed study of strategy and tactics on the actual fields of combat. Moreover, virtually all of this mapping and marking of battlefields took place prior to the advent of the automobile. Union and Confederate veterans traveling to battlefield reunions in the 1880s and the 1890s had to travel long distances by horse-drawn vehicles from the nearest railroad station to the battlefields. The temple of life was slower in those days. Uh, These veterans walked the fields at a very leisurely pace and studied them with an eye to detail. So monuments and markers identifying battle lines and troop positions were uniquely suited to this circumspect and detailed and slower method of study, when the veterans literally covered every foot of the battlefield. Uh, So the raising of such structures on battlefields also reflects, in a very real sense, the lifestyle of the period in which these markers and monuments were built. With regard to Civil War monuments, Social, cultural, and ideological factors were also critical in influencing the proliferation of these structures, not only on Civil War battlefields, but also in many uh, town squares and city parks throughout the country. Among contributing social and cultural factors were the following, uh, a growing interest in memorials, uh, developments in memorial architecture and sculpture, and the impact of the new field of landscape architecture. Simultaneously, political and economic conditions also encouraged memorialization of the Civil War. Besides constituting our greatest adversity as a republic, the Civil War, as we know, also took place during the Victorian era, which was a period of widespread commemorative activity. Memorials indeed became the preferred method for expressing popular feeling and popular sentiment during the mid to late, excuse me, 19th century. Considering then the Victorian passion for memorialization and the special place occupied by the Civil War in the hearts and minds of those who endured it, it's not really surprising um, that Civil War battlefields became favored sites where very deeply held communal emotions were expressed through the erection of monuments and memorials. Uh, Victorian cemeteries, Uh, Testify. I had to mention cemeteries for Helmut Waite. He asked me if I was going to talk about cemeteries, and I promised him he's also a cemetery freak as I am. So uh, we will discuss cemeteries. Uh, Victorian cemeteries testify compellingly to the heirs' interest in commemoration. Many of them contain elaborate and often pretentious monuments expressing feelings about death and devotion to the dead in great detail. The rural cemetery, which was a signal development in the evolution of Victorian cemeteries, seems to have been a precursor of the later monument-dotted battlefield parks. During the 1830s, many American cities started to establish landscaped rural cemeteries uh, in the countryside outside of town. Among the planners of these cemeteries were some of our first landscape architects. The burial grounds they designed were meant to replace overcrowded churchyards as the main burial grounds for residents of growing cities. Americans of the Victorian era established uh, many ornate monuments and memorials in such new rural cemeteries as Mount Auburn in Cambridge and Watertown, Massachusetts, and Cave Hill in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, These graveyards, which were also called garden cemeteries, were intended to function as parks and they became quite popular in that regard. The net effect of this rural or garden cemetery movement was the creation of commemorative countryside, uh, rural cemetery parks and sacred grounds in settings of great natural beauty with monuments encouraging quiet meditation and no doubt eliciting an emotional response from the visitor. Now, except for the higher density of monuments within their borders, rural cemeteries were very similar in appearance and in ambiance to the later Civil War battlefield parks. Of course, battlefield memorials to the war's martyred heroes, its special dead, enhanced the evocative capacity of the surrounding landscape. So commemoration in park-like settings at Antietam and at Gettysburg and Chickamauga and Shiloh and Vicksburg had an antecedent in this rural cemetery phenomenon. Uh, Moreover, the existence of national cemeteries in many of these battlefield parks underscores, I think, the relationship between the parks and these Victorian rural cemeteries. Against the backdrop of the Victorian era, the advantageous political and economic conditions also provided a favorable atmosphere for commemorating the Civil War on its battlefields. Governments at each level, federal, state, and local, were entrenched firmly by the final decades of the 19th century. Substantial corporate and individual fortunes also existed A political and economic structure which was capable of supporting commemorative activity thus was in place. Perhaps most importantly, running as a thread through the late 19th century, um, especially between the Civil War and the turn of the century, was a growing sense of nationhood. During the final quarter of the 19th century, Uh, the formation of new patriotic organizations and descendants societies, many of which had Southern as well as Northern support, reflected an intense interest with searching the American past for the sources of loyalty and of patriotism. Uh, The collective mood, therefore, promoted a desire to express nationalistic feelings in a very concrete fashion, So the movement to commemorate significant sites of the Revolution, and especially of the Civil War, uh, mirrors the patriotic spirit of that age. Veterans organizations and other civic-minded groups, um, all of which were very skilled at lobbying federal and state governments, urged commemoration of Civil War battlefields as well. Uh, with the exception of Grover Cleveland, who was a Democrat and who had hired a substitute during the Civil War. Every president from Ulysses S. Grant uh, through William McKinley was a Republican who belonged to the Grand Army of the Republic. Uh, many congressmen and senators also belonged to the Union Veterans Society. The GAR enjoyed probably its greatest national prestige and political influence during the late 1880s and the 1890s, and it was a key player in the drive to memorialize and to preserve battlefields. In addition, by 1890, ex-Confederates had organized in the United Confederate Veterans, not necessarily to dredge up old sectional issues nor to maintain a collective chip on the shoulder, but really to celebrate reconciliation while also extolling the Southern soldier's courage and rightful devotion to duty and to a cause in which he had believed. Commemorative activity was an extremely important part of the agenda of the UCV, uh, which listed many Southern congressmen on its roles the spirit which this organization embodied was instrumental in effecting eventual Southern support for memorialization and preservation of Civil War battlefields. Joining the GAR, the UCV, and other veterans groups in promoting commemoration of the Civil War were the railroads. uh, Memorialized and preserved battlefields, powerful symbols of a unique life experience would draw the aging veterans back Um, The burgeoning railroad industry saw a very unique opportunity here to foster both patriotism and tourism, and thus to increase profits through its advocacy of battlefield commemoration and preservation. That's the American way. Uh, Between 1890 and 1899, Americans generally, and Congress in particular, move beyond the idea that erecting monuments uh, and markers on historic battlefields was sufficient recognition of their importance. By sanctioning the preservation of five major Civil War fields as national military parks and one as a national battlefield site during the 1890s, Congress recognized their significance as tangible links to critical events in American and world history. In the process, Congress also established substantial groundwork for our current National Historic Preservation Program. The five sites designated national parks were Chickamauga and Chattanooga, as we know, two sites, one park in 1890, Shiloh in 1894, Gettysburg in 1895, and Vicksburg in 1899. Antietam was set aside as a national battlefield site uh, in 1890, actually on August 30th, 1890, only 11 days after Chick Chat was set aside. Uh, during the same decade, that the national military parks were so designated, increasing concern for the conservation of natural resources led to the establishment of four national scenic parks in the West, uh, the first to follow the establishment of Yellowstone in 1872. Uh, These were Yosemite, Sequoia, and General Grant, uh, established in 1890, and Mount Rainier in 1899. Uh, It's worthy of note, I think, that one of the four was named after a rather important Union General. Again, an interesting illustration of the spirit of that age. Uh, The year 1890 also witnessed congressional authorization for the creation of Rock Creek Park in the District of Columbia. This was one of the first large natural urban parks in the United States, similar to Fairmont Park in Philadelphia and Central Park in New York City. Uh, Although it was located in a major metropolitan area, Rock Creek's purpose was identical to that of its wilderness counterparts. In fact, Congress used some of the terminology of Yellowstone's enabling legislation in the Rock Creek Park enactment. Like Yellowstone, Rock Creek was intended to serve, quote, as a public park or pleasure ground for the benefit and enjoyment of the people of the United States, unquote where all the timber, animals, and curiosities were to be retained, quote, in their natural condition, as nearly as possible, unquote. Uh, It's reasonable to conclude, I think, that the passion for conserving national resources, which emerged full-blown during the Progressive Era, was operating as well during the 1890s. Uh, and it was a factor influencing the government's flurry of activities which was directed at both natural and historic entities. The Progressive Era mentality uh, in its infancy at this point would focus on reform in all areas of American life, uh, a response to the problems brought on by industrialization and modernization and urbanization. In terms of the natural environment the reform impulse took shape in the preservation of open space, which even at that point in time was threatening to disappear. At the dawn of the 20th century, this desire to provide modern Americans with places for contemplation and recreation was part of the complex of motives supporting the federal government's establishment of national parks, including the Civil War battlefield parks established during the 1890s. Of course, at that point, it was impossible to anticipate that the passing years would witness the creation of one national park system which would link the parks of the late 19th century with parks subsequently created. Still a firm and necessary foundation uh, had been built. A significant number of the Civil War parks currently in the national park system shared a common genesis as national battlefield cemeteries for union dead in this sphere the practical need to bury the casualties of war went hand in hand with the desire to remember and to honor their sacrifice a soldiers national cemetery on the field at gettysburg was not strictly speaking the first of those national cemeteries but it was among the first virtually since the cemetery's wartime inception and actually since the battle itself. The entire field, as we know, has been a powerful and a unique patriotic symbol, thanks to the struggle's drama and magnitude and its perceived military primacy and to Abraham Lincoln's immortal words dedicating the cemetery. Still, the motives driving the founders of Soldiers National Cemetery did not exist in a vacuum. Those same forces were operative in the formation of other battlefield cemeteries, both during and after the war. Uh, An examination of the establishment of this one cemetery, which provided a vehicle for expressions of grief and rededication to the Union cause, therefore can shed light on the general commemorative impulse emerging from the special meaning of the Civil War. Soon after the battle, Governor Andrew Curtin visited Gettysburg to assess the care being given to his state's wounded and provisions being made for its dead. What he saw, as we well know, was a ravaged landscape where 6,000 men had died and over 20,000 had been injured. Uh, Many of the dead had been buried very quickly uh, in makeshift graves on the battlefield. Although expeditious and permanent interment of all the dead was a pressing need for obvious reasons, interment of, um, or concern for union fatalities and their proper burial did take precedence at that time. The Confederate dead were destined to remain in mass graves throughout the battlefield until the early 1870s. At that time, memorial associations of Southern women uh, led a movement To transfer and to reinter those remains in the cemeteries of several southern cities. On the other hand, Union dead um, had made the supreme sacrifice while successfully defending northern soil against the Confederate invader. In the aftermath of that signal triumph, the abiding concern of loyal states that their fallen sons receive proper burial and due recognition led to the establishment of Soldiers National Cemetery on Cemetery Hill. Efforts to provide a proper final resting place for federal dead came under the direction of prominent Gettysburg attorney, David Wills. During his post-battle visit, Governor Curtin appointed Wills as his representative in arranging for the burial of fallen Pennsylvanians delegates of other Union states traveled to Gettysburg to perform the same task for their dead, and it was from a late July meeting of Wills and these other state agents that the idea of a common or a national cemetery emerged. Upon Governor Curtin's endorsement of the idea, David Wills solicited financial support for building the cemetery from northern governors whose troops had fought at Gettysburg, and he purchased a total of 17 acres on Cemetery Hill adjacent to the municipal Evergreen Cemetery in the name of his state. As land acquisition was ongoing, Wills engaged the services of well-known landscape architect William Saunders to design the cemetery. Eventually, participating northern states did agree to appropriate funds for construction of the cemetery and a fitting monument, uh, said funding to be, accor- to be apportioned according to each state's representation in Congress. William Saunders' plan for the cemetery at Gettysburg featured a central monument to honored union dead, uh, a soldier's national monument with wedge-shaped state plots Radiating out in a semicircle from that focal point. An additional key element of his design was Saunders' provision for spacious lawns and the limited planting of trees and shrubs. In accordance also with contemporary principles of landscape architecture, the cemetery was to be encircled by thick stone walls and an iron fence. Ultimately, as he put it, William Saunders' goal was the creation of, quote, a pleasing landscape and pleasure-ground effect, unquote, and an overall impression of simple grandeur. With Interment of the Dead barely underway, it started in late October or early November. It's hard to pinpoint the exact date. But at any rate, with Interment of the Dead barely underway, Soldiers National Cemetery was dedicated on the 19th of November in 1863. Edward Everett, one of the most respected public figures of the day and one of the most respected public speakers, uh, gave the main address, a two-hour long oration full of classical illusions and Victorian sentimentality. Uh, then Abraham Lincoln, as we know, took less than three minutes to deliver his few appropriate remarks and Gettysburg's enduring status as an American icon was ensured. <clears throat> Soldiers National Cemetery was among the first historic sites in the national park system to come under federal jurisdiction from other hands. The cemetery's board of commissioners, which was composed of representatives from the 18 participating states, approved its transfer to the federal government in 1868. The chief reason for this decision was the difficulty and the expense of running the cemetery operation uh, under a large and not always harmonious group of administrators. In 1870, legislation authorizing acceptance of the national cemeteries at Gettysburg and at Antietam was passed in Congress and was signed by President Grant. The secretary of war officially took title to soldiers national cemetery for the nation in 1872 like soldiers national cemetery antietam national cemetery was also the product of a joint effort by union states Uh, its governing board transferred the cemetery's title to the federal government in 1877. the trying circumstances surrounding the burial of Gettysburg's dead, were not unique. They were repeated in various theaters and on major fields throughout the war. This situation stirred the national conscience, of course, from the outset, and it also heightened the perception that federal dead were martyrs in the struggle to save the Union, and that their remains required honorable treatment from a grateful people. Congress responded in 1867 by approving general legislation that provided for the large network of national cemeteries subsequently developed by the War Department and currently administered by the Veterans Administration. Uh, Initial congressional action concerning national cemeteries had been taken five years earlier, in 1862 when Congress had authorized President Lincoln to acquire land, quote, to be used as a national cemetery for soldiers who shall have died in the service of the country, unquote. However, the monumental task of identifying thousands of Union casualties and then providing permanent, properly recorded burial sites required a considerable expansion of that original and very limited 1862 mandate. Moreover, expediency required that authority to perform the task be delegated to an office which could devote full attention to it. Congress therefore passed an act to establish and to protect national cemeteries in February of 1867. This law gave legal foundation to the cemeterial system whose growth had already started during the war itself, sort of a case of the tail wagging the dog, if you will, It also committed Congress to a sound fiscal policy in funding the system's ongoing formation and invested authority for acquiring and developing cemeterial lands in the Secretary of War. By 1870, 73 national cemeteries had been established or designated and they held almost 300,000 Union remains. Nine of these national cemeteries were on or near major Civil War battlefields, and one was at Andersonville Prison. Uh, All ten of these sites subsequently became national military reservations of one designation or another. Among these ten were the first five national military parks established during the 1890s, um, all of which were preceded by national cemeteries on their respective battlefields. Besides being the site of one of our first National Civil War cemeteries, Gettysburg also was the scene of the initial effort to preserve battlefield land itself for strictly commemorative purposes. On the 30th of April in 1864, the state of Pennsylvania incorporated the Gettysburg Battlefield Memorial Association, which was the brainchild of prominent Gettysburg attorney David McConaughey. Among the group's early supporters were Governor Curtin, uh, Thaddeus Stevens, Financier Jay Cook, and other civic-minded citizens of Pennsylvania. Their express purpose was to hold and preserve the battlefield with the natural and artificial defenses as they were at the time of said battle and such memorial structures as a generous and patriotic people may aid to erect to commemorate the heroic deeds, the struggles and the triumph of their brave defenders. The 1864 Act of Incorporation authorized the association's directors to purchase land and to enclose important sections of the battlefield. Excuse me. It also empowered them to erect and to regulate the erection of monuments that would commemorate, quote, the great deeds of valor, and the signal triumphs which render these battlegrounds illustrious, unquote. The Gettysburg Battlefield Memorial Association, which was founded in the midst of war, um, was one of the first historic preservation groups in the United States. The work of preservation and commemoration which it initiated would culminate in the establishment of a great national military park in 1895. Still, it was the interest and the ensuing activism of the veterans themselves, which was the crucial ingredient keeping the enterprise at Gettysburg alive after early enthusiasm did dwindle during the 1870s. In fact, the GBMA was dormant by 1875, mainly due to lack of much needed financial support from the other northern states. So the the GBMA during the first 10 years of its existence was essentially a Pennsylvania enterprise. Um, The Grand Army of the Republic, however, breathed new life into the GBMA after the G.A.R.'s Pennsylvania Department began to hold summer reunions at Gettysburg uh, in 1878. The Department's Assistant Adjutant General, John Vanderslice of Philadelphia, became convinced that the goal of the GBMA, which was preservation of the battlefield as a Union memorial, was noble and worthwhile. He therefore initiated a campaign publicizing the association within the Pennsylvania Department and he urged its members to join. By 1880, Pennsylvania's local GAR posts and individual members had purchased enough stock in the GBMA to allow the GAR to take over the Board of Directors. In 1880 as well, Congress appropriated $50,000 for a detailed survey of the field. According to the enabling legislation, this work was to be done by John Batchelder, who had been studying and mapping the battlefield in consultation with numerous participants in the battle virtually since the, day of the days of the battle itself. During the early 80s, Union regimental organizations began to mark their positions at Gettysburg. By the late 1880s, Union veterans had been successful in soliciting funding from a number of Union state legislatures for battlefield monuments. And by 1895, all Union states with participants in the battle except West Virginia had funded troop markers at Gettysburg. As the battle's 25th anniversary in 1888 drew near, efforts to preserve and to tell the Union Army's story obviously flourished. The GBMA, at that point in time, owned about 500 acres of land, and those 500 acres encompassed some of the most significant sites on the battlefield. Uh, the Grove on McPherson's Ridge, where General John Reynolds had been killed, um, all of Little Round Top and part of Big Round Top, the Wheatfield, Devil's Den, Culp's Hill, the eastern area of Cemetery Hill, and most of the Federal line along Cemetery Ridge. About 13 miles of road had been built along Union lines, over 300 markers, designated key Union positions, and wire fencing surrounded GBMA-owned tracts of battlefield land. Understandably, there had been no Confederate commemorative movement at Gettysburg, paralleling that undertaken by the GAR, the GBMA, and others uh, by the late 1880s. The physical and the psychological impact of war and reconstruction left few if any resources and virtually no inclination for a concerted southern effort to establish battlefield monuments anywhere, let alone to memorialize uh, a critical Confederate setback on northern soil. Moreover, the GBMA, which regulated commemorative activity, was concerned solely with Union memorialization, and clearly it was not going about promoting Confederate commemoration of the Gettysburg battlefield. Prior to 1880, southern interest in Gettysburg had been limited to the removal of Confederate remains, and their interment in Richmond and in several other southern cities. Uh, In 1882, a group of Confederate veterans did visit Gettysburg to locate and to designate certain of their troop positions, and they were followed by other veterans of the Army of Northern Virginia. Still, only two Confederate markers actually stood on the field when the 25th anniversary celebration took place in 1888. Um, Those two were the Second Maryland Monument on South Culp's Hill and the marker identifying the spot where General Lewis Armistead fell at the angle during Pickett's Charge, and that was erected in 1887. The very fact, however, that any Confederate markers had been placed at Gettysburg by the late 1880s Was more meaningful than their number. Equally important was the format of the anniversary observance in 1888 at Gettysburg, a reunion of Union and Confederate veterans on the battlefield itself. This gathering was not the first of its type, moreover, but it was part of a continuing phenomenon of so-called blue and gray reunions, initiated during the late 1870s and set in various locations northern and southern cities, as well as former fields of combat. By 1888, Reconstruction had been over for a decade, and Union and Confederate veterans had come together in business dealings and in the national political arena for a number of years. The healing process had started, reconciliation, however tenuous, was underway. With the passage of over 20 years, Union veterans and some members of the general public started to understand what they had ignored for such a long time, and that was the fo- and it was the following: um, the story of the Union Army was not the only story to be told at Gettysburg. Unable to deny the courage and the ability of their opposite numbers, some Union veterans came to see that markers which designated Confederate lines and gave. Factual information in a non-judgmental fashion were necessary, were absolutely essential to relate the full story on the battlefield. At the same time, survivors of other battles began to indicate an interest in preserving the fields where they had struggled. Interestingly, it was such a movement at a site other than Gettysburg, which led to the establishment of our first national military park in 1890. Despite the fame of the battle in the cemetery at Gettysburg, the battlefield at Chickamauga in northwestern Georgia was the first national or the first historic military site to be preserved under national auspices. Gettysburg, designated a national military park in 1895, was the fourth of five created during the 1890s. Reasons for this chronology have been suggested previously, and they are related clearly to post-war Southern disinterest in Gettysburg. Gettysburg had been a pivotal Union victory on Northern soil, not particularly something Southerners wanted to remember. Chickamauga, however, had been a resounding Confederate victory on Southern soil. Additionally, the GBMA's negative outlook on Confederate commemoration meant that At the very beginning, the evolutionary process leading to the establishment of Gettysburg National Military Park did not have broad national appeal, but had to somehow pick up southern support somewhere along the line. On the other hand, the road leading to the preservation of Chickamauga had only started in the late 1880s. By that time, a quarter of a century had passed since Appomattox and sentiments favoring healing and reconciliation were stronger. The temper of the times was more conducive then to preservation and memorialization focusing on both armies. Such efforts, therefore, were more capable of drawing broad national backing, as they did at Chickamauga. Another source of support for preservation of the field at Chickamauga existed in the fact that the contending forces, the Union Army of the Cumberland and the Confederate Army of Tennessee, had brought soldiers from virtually every state to that field. Ultimately, a midsummer ride over the battlefield by two former Union officers in 1888 marked the beginning of a drive that steadily picked up speed and culminated two years later in the creation of Chickamauga and Chattanooga National Military Park. As former Union officers, Henry Van Ness Boynton and Ferdinand Vanderveer, both members of the Society of the Army of the Cumberland, traveled the ground near West Chickamauga Creek in June of 1888. It occurred to them that the site should be a Western Gettysburg, a Chickamauga Memorial. At the same time, they decided that commemoration at Chickamauga should expand on that at Gettysburg where only Union lines were marked. They intended that the lines of both armies should be equally marked. Historical accuracy and also political expediency demanded such an approach. Boynton, who at that point in time was the Washington correspondent for the Cincinnati, Ohio Commercial Gazette, stated the case as follows, quote, the survivors of the Army of the Cumberland should awake to great pride in this notable field of Chickamauga. There was no more magnificent fighting than both armies did here. Both sides might well unite in preserving the field where both, in a military sense, won, so, won such renown, unquote. Late in 1888, the Chickamauga Memorial Association took shape within the Society of the Army of the Cumberland, to lobby for the marking and preservation of the battlefield at Chickamauga. This initial effort soon encompassed veterans of both armies in a joint memorial association. Then following a massive blue-gray reunion at Chickamauga in September of 1889, the preservation campaign surged forward, steadily picking up popular support. Along the way, intense interest generated by the plan along with the need for Northern support, led its originators to enlarge the proposed battlefield reservation to include key sites of the related struggle for Chattanooga, a great federal victory. Legislation authorizing the establishment then of Chickamauga and Chattanooga National Military Park moved through Congress unopposed, and it was signed by President Benjamin Harrison on the 19th of August in 1890. This law was the first in American history to provide for the preservation of an historic battlefield, and as such, it established a crucial precedent for the future, and for those of us who love to walk battlefields as well. Um, Chickamauga, Chattanooga, and other Civil War fields designated as national military reservations during the 1890s were intended to serve as memorials to the great armies of North and South. The Chickamauga Park, for example, honored the Army of the Cumberland and the Army of Tennessee. The Park at Gettysburg commemorated the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia, as did Antietam National Battlefield site. Shiloh National Military Park memorialized the Union Armies of the Tennessee and the Ohio and the Confederate Army of Mississippi. Proper recognition of the Army of the Tennessee, however, required preservation of both Shiloh and Vicksburg, for Vicksburg, of course, had been the site of one of that Army's greatest campaigns. Consequently, Congress established Vicksburg National Military Park in 1899 to complete this first phase in the evolution of our National Military Park system. As the Chickamauga-Chattanooga enabling legislation moved through channels, a second and equally compelling purpose for national military parks emerged. This goal was suggested by the House Committee on Military Affairs when it reported favorably on the Park Bill in March of 1890, and I quote, the preservation for national study of the lines of decisive battles especially when the tactical movements were unusual, both in numbers and military ability, and when the fields embraced great natural difficulties may properly be regarded as a matter of national importance," unquote. The committee went on to specify historical and professional study as the type of educational activity it deemed appropriate on such fields as Chickamauga and Chattanooga. Ensuing legislation in 1896 fleshed out the committee's vision by emphasizing professional military study, And calling for the use of national military parks as fields for military maneuvers of the regular Army of the United States and the National Guard of the States. Dr. J. Luvas of the Army War College has suggested that this provision for battlefield usage by the American military may have been a matter of political expediency, a justification for the unprecedented expenditure of federal funds uh, to preserve national battlefields. And he's probably right. Right. Regardless of that possibility, however, the fact remains that from inception, the five national military reservations established during the 1890s had two purposes. First of all, commemoration of the great armies of North and South and recognition of the heroism of all American soldiers, Northern and Southern, living and dead. And secondly, the preservation of Civil War battlefields for educational purposes specifically hands-on historical study by military professionals. That precedent having been set then, National Military Reservations subsequently created were to serve in the same educational capacity. Although Gettysburg National Military Park was not established until 1895, the legislative effort to effect that end had started in 1890. During the course of the movement, Threatened commercial development, that is the construction of a trolley line on still privately owned battlefield land fomented very serious dispute between the Gettysburg Electric Railway Company and concerned local and national preservationists. This was a dispute which led to federal intervention through condemnation of the land in question and then uh, its taking by eminent domain. The Railway Company challenged this federal government action with the case eventually finding its way to the Supreme Court. The result was a decision with profound implications for the future of battlefield and historic preservation in the United States. In a unanimous verdict announced by Justice Rufus Peckham in 1896, the court declared that preserving lines of battle and properly marking battlefield positions was an appropriate public use, justifying the government's course of action. The justices based their decision upon what they saw as the intimate connection between the war's impact on the continued existence of the nation and the battlefield as a visible reminder of that definitive struggle. The precedent thus established confirmed the propriety of governmental involvement in the preservation of nationally important historic sites, specifically its acquisition of land for preservation purposes, and that clearly was a critical precedent. By the turn of the century, then, the meaning of the Civil War experience had been written by its generation on the fields of that struggle through the marking and the preservation of those fields. In the process, that generation also displayed key values of late 19th century American life and established a solid basis for the future development of our national military park system. Thank you.
0: Mary, to your credit, neither the heat <laughs> nor the UDC next door got to you.
2: <laughs> yeah, a
0: special medal for you.
2: Thank you so much.
0: I I think uh, probably ne- it was never more appropriate to award this when it says uh, presented to uh, Mary Munselabro for gallant <laughs> underlined service.
2: Underline gallant.
0: yes, right, underlined. Civil War Roundtable of Chicago uh December thirteenth,
2: 1991. Mary.
0: Thank you. All right, questions. In the back.
1: Um, Ron asked if General, if the ever popular and irrepressible General Jubal Early uh, had any involvement in any of this preservation activity. He, um, I can't really recall Um, I know that he was involved in the commemoration of the Confederacy, and I'm reading a book to that effect right now. As far as his actual participation in preservation and mapping and marking of battlefields, I'm not really sure. I have a feeling he was too busy lambasting James Longstreet and other people to get real interested in preserving battlefields. Um, it, It seems to me that Perhaps he he played a role. I have a recollection to that effect, but as far as specific knowledge, I really can't help you with that. But I can tell you the name of a fine book um, to help. That's a true teacher's response. I'm not sure, but I can tell you where to look it up. Mm. Yeah, Bill?
2: During your talk, you alluded to something that I've heard conflicting information about, about the denial of burial rights during this period to Confederate soldiers. And then when that
1: changed? Well that's an interesting topic. Um, there were twenty-seven national cemeteries, so-called national cemeteries, designated or set aside or somehow established during the war. And Confederate POWs clearly were buried in these national cemeteries. I mean, the cemetery here in Chicago where the dead of Camp Douglas were buried um, is, is a fine example of that. But I think, no, no, I'm, I'm talking about Rock Island, I, I believe. But um, yeah, Rock Island. But as far as battlefield cemeteries, people who established the battlefield cemeteries were very careful that Confederates did not find their way into those cemeteries. In fact, David Wills, um, I've read some interesting quotes by David Wills, and he employed a man who knew um, what the Confederate bodies looked like so that when they were reintering the Federals from the battlefield to put them into Soldiers National Cemetery, and he could tell by uniforms and other things so that there was no mistake in taking up the bodies, he said to make sure that confederates who were killed in battle did not find their way into these cemeteries but burial of POWs was a whole other ball game every civilized nation of course um, took care of their POWs including uh, according them honorable burial so there was this distinction between burying confederate POWs in the national cemeteries and making sure that confederates met on the battlefield those foes did not find their way at least into the national battlefield cemeteries although um there, were, there are very few Confederate POWs, I think five buried at Vicksburg. I think there are two buried at Shiloh. Um, there are none at Antietam that I know of, and there are a few at Gettysburg as well, and not POWs, um, maybe as many as eight. I've read an interesting book on that. But um, it, the intent was not to bury Confederates, at least in these national battlefield cemeteries.
0: General Lee
1: had his home. Arlington was start. Arlington was started during the war. Well, it was appropriated. You know, uh, most of this, most of the land um, where these battlefield, most of the places where Confederates or where Federals were buried uh, in the combat zone were appropriated. Uh, there was no, you know, the money did not change hands. Uh, they were just appropriated, and so it was no problem appropriating Arlington. And then after the fact, I, I, I've read the, I've read about this. I can't place the exact details, but it was one of the battle national cemeteries established during the war. Arlington was.
2: hmm It's certainly clear why Confederate states would want their dead returned to
1: the from a site like Gettysburg. But what were some of the cultural factors that, <coughs> that would make the choice between whether dead would return? To home state cemeteries are buried in National Cemetery. sometimes I think it had to do with whether a person was an officer or not and whether their family had money um, as for example in soldiers National Cemetery at Gettysburg um, most of the people, the, the highest-ranking officers are not buried there. There are several officers, several commissioned officers buried there. But most of the um, general officers, their bodies, their remains, were brought home by their families. And so I, I believe that it has to do with, with money, um, clout of some kind or other. Okay.
2: Oh God! You know what,
1: Bill? I stopped having to take final exams a long, long time ago. I'm not sure that I want to get involved with any of it. But if you would like to discuss it with me after this public se- question and answer session, I'd be happy to sit down and and uh, have you buy me a drink, and we'll talk about it. Thank you, Bill.
2: Yes, huh? Yes.
1: What was the policy about uh, burial in their... In the research I've done, and I have to remember back some, I've come across records in the National Archives which indicate that, I'd say maybe 10, 20 years after the war, there there are references to colored people, colored troops being buried in some of these national cemeteries, but they were in separate sections and segregated sections if you will so there were some of them there as far as specifics and which cemeteries these were i can't exactly recall although i do have a recollection that chattanooga national cemetery may have had a section like that that's about the best i can do i do have specific records at home thanks for the question paul Mm -hmm.
2: it was very interesting to learn about the attempt to construct a trolley line Anywhere. yeah
1: any other similar kinds of paul asked uh, paul commented on the fact that as early as the 1890s what you had was threatened commercial development on still privately owned battlefield land and he was referring to this the the construction of an electric trolley line at gettysburg um Not to my knowledge, and the reason that this came up at Gettysburg, of course, is related to Gettysburg's fame. Um, As early as the 1870s, Gettysburg was already a tourist site. And by the 1890s, you had this up-and-coming um, new transportation technology. Electric trolley cars were all the rage. And so the idea was to build this, this trolley line from Gettysburg out to... This was out in the area of Devil's Den, uh, where they were building the trolley line. And that's where the land, some of the land was still in private ownership. And the government came in and took the land to, to try to prevent that from happening. But as far as other places, um, I, I really don't know. But there wasn't the fame of, associated with them that there was with Gettysburg at this time. Do you want to take a couple more
0: questions?
1: Yeah, people are probably tired of Okay. Maybe we'll take a couple more. more. Mm-hmm. Uh, where would you find, where did you find the
2: A&R? You know, they said, or something. You're going to be, to be
1: to Oh. Well, I'll tell you, uh, Brooks Davis here uh, is an is the resident expert on the GAR. I do know that um, there are there's a fine set of records of the Illinois GAR right here in Chicago in special collections of the Chicago Public Library. Is that correct? And the New did you say the Newberry at the Newberry? Could you could you respond to that question? He was asked. The gentleman was asking about the location of records, primary source records on the GAR. Could you um, enlighten us, please?
2: Thank you. Okay, Hope one
1: that one one. helps. Thank you, Brooks. In the middle. Yeah, Bruce. It's not
2: detailed very
0: well that we've
1: no it's um it's not just an american phenomenon but the americans the americans really originated the idea of the national park and as far as i know we're the only place in the world that has these national military parks um i've never been to the european battlefields it's my it's my goal in life to take a tour of Waterloo, Dunkirk, and uh, various and assorted other places in France. But I do know, for instance, at Verdun that uh, um, that the dead are buried in this in this massive ossuary. Some of you have been there, and the the the, the Europeans seem to do it differently than we do. And as I said, the, the the park, the the national military park, the national park is really an American creation. Um, they certainly do commemorate, and people who've been there could probably uh, enlighten you much better than I can. Um, Paul, do you have? Could you share some a little bit of knowledge with us? Yes, uh, on, on
2: Normandy beaches, there is a museum, the British Museum, at Gold Beach, and there's a commemoration on uh, Utah Beach as well, where the fourth <coughs> division came in. I've been there a couple of times. Uh, one of the things that we can't do, I guess just put up any commemorative commemorative tablets and all the bivouac places that we were in. These are just farms, you see, and roads. I don't know what kind of uh, uh, other commemorations they have. I know in some of the larger towns and cities, in St. Louis, for instance, they have a very large American flag uh, with electric lights built in it, commemorating one of the captains who was killed in the assault. So they have these things,
1: Nothing like like our parks. No. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you again.
0: All right. Uh, Thank you very much, Mary, for uh, a a most enlightening talk and uh, and well presented. I I might add. Our next meeting, we're going to let you go a little early this evening. Uh, You can go home or you can go next door and party all night, I
2: guess.
0: (laughs) Our next meeting will be January 10th. Karen Osborne and Virginia Crane will speak on a a woman's war, two perspectives, north and south. Please drive carefully and have a happy holiday. Thank you.